Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Morning, church. Good to see you all today. And uh, good morning to all those who are streaming online, going to church in your underwear. Good to have you with us, too. Today is the fifth Sunday after Epiphany, and uh, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, if you want to turn there in your Bible. Um, First, real quick, I want to give you a quick update about where we are in the process of adding new members to our elder team. If you were around last fall, you'll remember that we put out a call to the congregation for you to submit names of women and men in our church that you thought would be uh, good elders for us. And you guys responded to that call. Uh, Too much, in fact. We got a long list of names, lots and lots of wonderful folks, uh, lots of elder qualified people in my estimation, Uh, way more than we need. And so the process thus far has been um, our current elders and pastors uh, prayerfully discerning and whittling that list down to a handful of just a, a few names that we feel called by God to Uh, invite into this process of pursuing eldership. And so for the last several months, uh, a handful of Antiochers have uh, been in this in this process of uh, prayer and discernment, discussion. They've been reading books and writing papers. Uh, we're interviewing them, all that kind of stuff. And um, my best guess is that within the next month or two, uh, we're gonna, going to be able to bring uh, a few names before you as the congregation, names that you have nominated and that we uh, as the current elders want to put forward. And so I'm going to save the names until we've gone through the process, but I just uh, wanted to give you an update since it's been a while since we've spoken about it from the front. And um, we've got a pretty sweet team coming together, so you're going to like it, I promise. Just sit tight. So, sound good? All right, Luke chapter 5. As you heard in the scripture reading, um, there are several characters in this story that uh, Luke tells, but really this is primarily a story about an unforgettable encounter that a fisherman named Peter has with Jesus of Nazareth. So Simon was his name originally, and Jesus renames him Peter because it's probably the most manly, strongest name there is out there, and it literally means rock. So those of us with rock-like physiques, it's pretty fitting. And um, Peter and a couple other fishermen are out. They're fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and they're getting skunked, which is a bummer um, no matter who you are, anytime you're fishing, but when you're a professional fisherman, to be out all night, your livelihood depends on this catch. And you're in really bad shape if you don't catch a single fish all night long. And so Jesus has been hanging out on the boat with them, teaching. And now he kind of says to them, hey, why don't you guys try moving out of the shallow water, go a little bit further out into the deep water, and throw your nets down there. Now, we can only imagine what this fishing advice would have sounded like to Peter and his friends. These guys are professional fishermen. They've been fishing this lake probably every single day of their lives. 
and this rabbi carpenter comes along and says, hey, you guys should try over there. And I love how Peter replies to Jesus in verse 5. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Now, if you pay attention, I think a better translation of because you say so would be if you say so. Meaning, I don't really think Peter is saying, yes, sir, whatever you say, sir, if because you say so. I think he's saying, all right, if you say so, right? I don't think he has a lot of confidence taking fishing advice from Jesus, but maybe he decides to humor him and goes ahead and does it. Um, And as the story goes, they end up bringing in the biggest catch of their lives. Which again, we're not just talking about how fun it is to catch a lot of fish. We're talking about income, livelihood, revenue for these guys. These, uh, this isn't just a good day on the lake. This is like a one in a million, once in a lifetime kind of catch that's going to change your life forever. And so look at what Peter says to Jesus then in verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, this huge two boats full of fish, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. So pause real quick and say, this is where we start to see why this is a story that's fitting for the season of Epiphany that we're in. Epiphany is all about God's self-revelation to the world in Christ. This is when we celebrate God showing the world who he is and what he's like through Jesus. And that's what's happening in this story. One commentator says, when Jesus calls, Peter is hesitant and thinks that what Jesus asks of him is both unnecessary and too demanding. Nevertheless, Peter responds and he discovers that life has a surprise in store for him. By doing what Jesus asks him to do, he experiences an epiphany of God. I love that. By doing what Jesus asks him to do, he experiences an epiphany of God. And so in this epiphany moment on the Sea of Galilee, Peter comes to a place where he is able to see things more clearly than he's ever seen them before. He sees who Jesus really is, and he sees who he really is for the first time in his life. And he sums it up by saying, get away from me, Jesus, for I am a sinful man. What an interesting thing to say. I've been wrestling with this question all week, and I wonder what you think, too. The question is, Is Peter right? When Peter says, get away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man, is that an appropriate response for someone who has just witnessed the miraculous revealing of the power and glory of God? Is he right? Because Peter's not the first person in the Bible to have this kind of reaction when they encounter the presence of God. Think through the story of the scriptures. You even think back to Adam. After he had sinned, 
God finds him hiding in the garden. God calls out to him, where are you? And in Genesis 3.10, Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Think about Moses. When God appears to him in the burning bush, is going to call him to be the leader of his people. God reveals himself to Moses, and in Exodus 3, at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. One more, think about Isaiah, the prophet. When God appears to him in this vision, Isaiah catches this glimpse of the beauty and the glory of God and says in Isaiah 6, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. There's a bunch of other examples, but you start to get the picture that all throughout the story of the Bible, that often when people encounter the presence of God in a clear way, when they have an epiphany of God, they often react in the same way that Peter does. Get away from me. I'm going to hide. I'm going to turn my face away. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. And so again, the question is, are they right? Is that an appropriate or accurate assessment of the situation? Another way of asking this is, are we as humans truly too sinful to bear the presence of a holy God? Or from the other side, is God too holy to allow sinful humans in his presence. Because that seems to be the instinctive reaction of Peter and many others. That I'm too sinful to be with God. God is too holy to let me be with him. For those of us that have been around church for a while, we've probably heard variations of this idea more times than we can count that a holy God cannot tolerate sin in his presence. But I think it's worth asking this morning what the Bible actually teaches about the sinfulness of humanity and the holiness of God and whether or not they can actually cohabitate. And so I think the first question we have to ask is the anthropological question, the human question. And that is, bear with me, are humans at our core basically good or are we basically bad when we come into this world what is the truest thing about us what is our nature is it good or is it evil are we bent toward god or toward or, or away from him what do you think are humans fundamentally inherently good or are we bad and i would argue that the way that you answer that question consciously or subconsciously, is going to radically shape the way that you see the world. It's going to shape the way you see yourself, the way you see others, the way you see God. And it's not an easy question. Humans have been wrestling with it since the beginning of time, and it still shows up all over the place in our world today if you're paying attention. Any Breaking Bad fans? How many of you watch Breaking Bad? Okay, as a Christian, I chose not to, but for those that wanted to, just kidding, a few of you. 
It's a pretty gritty show, but it's pretty amazing. And um, part of what made it so good to me is that it's wrestling with this big question. Are people basically good or basically bad? So it's the show about this nerdy, middle-aged chemistry teacher named Walter White. And um, he ends up getting cancer. And he's afraid he's going to leave his family with nothing. And so in order to make a bunch of money and leave them an inheritance, he becomes a meth dealer. <laughs> okay? And this is the before and the after picture. You watch this really good guy over the course of whatever it is, seven seasons or something, a really good guy slowly morph into a really bad guy. He's breaking bad. So the question is, as viewers, we're wrestling with, deep down, is Walter a good guy who gets desperate and he gets scared and ends up behaving like a bad guy? Or was Walt always, deep down, a bad guy, but he kept it inside for the first 50 years of his life, and now his true nature is starting to shine through? I think the creators of the show actually do an amazing job of telling the story in, in the way that makes viewers wrestle with the question of human nature. Or how about politics? How about it? Uh, maybe it's just me. Has anybody else noticed that see, things seem a little divided at the moment when it comes to politics in our country? Um, it's complicated, obviously, and you're all nervous already. <laughs> I'm not going to try to boil it down or give you the answer or anything like that. But I actually genuinely believe that this anthropological question, the question of human nature, radically shapes our political ideology and an engagement in ways we may not even be aware of. And so these are oversimplifications, overgeneralizations. So just, you're fine, you're fine. Think about the debate between the two major political ideologies in our country. On the left, the highest good is the idea of equality. And on the right, the highest good is the idea of freedom. Okay? On the left, they, it sees itself as progressive, seeking a better tomorrow. And on the right, as conservative, preservation of what is good, holding on to the best of our heritage. The left values cooperation, and the right values competition. Now, here's my theory. Deep down, the left and right have differing values and visions because they hold differing beliefs about human nature. They're starting from a different point when it comes to the human question. So on the left, you have a liberalism, which is, I think you can argue, based on the assumption that people are basically good. And that if they're given the right structures and support, any human is capable of meaningful contribution to society. And on the right, you have conservatism, which is based on the fact that humans are basically bad. So if you 
So we aren't entitled to anything. So therefore, if you work hard and you make good decisions, things are going to go well from you. And if you slack off and make bad decisions, you're digging yourself your grave. Now, again, these are obviously major oversimplifications. There's all kinds of variations and exceptions and nuance to all this. Some of us lean right on some issues, left on others. So it's not that simple, but I hope you can at least begin to see that the way we answer the human question has a significant impact on the way we see the world. So that's what the world has to say about the human question. Well, let's ask, what does the Bible have to say about it? That should clear things up. According to the Bible, are people basically good or basically bad? Let's look just at a couple verses in the Psalms and see what the Bible has to say about human nature. Psalm 139, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Seems pretty clear. Every human life is fearfully and wonderfully made by God, and therefore we are inherently good when we enter into the world. Pretty clear. Let's look at the next one. Psalm 51. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Sounds like we're bad. So obviously picking and choosing random verses isn't going to help us. I want to give you a really quick what I would call biblical anthropology. What does the Bible teach about human nature and the human condition? I'm going to do this real fast. Let me sum it up with two short sentences. First, all humans are made in the image of God. It's the first thing that the Bible, that's how humans are introduced into the story of the Bible in Genesis 1. All humans are made in the image of God. That's the first thing that's true about us. The second thing that's true about us is that because of sin, God's image is broken in all of us. Because of sin, God's God's image is broken in all of us. Both of these things are true at the same time. All humans are made in God's image, and because of sin, God's image is broken in all of us. So what I want to say is that the Christian answer to the human question doesn't fit nicely into any of the boxes of pop culture or partisan politics. The biblical answer to the human question is much more sophisticated. It's much more realistic, much less reductionistic when it understands the complexity and the nuance and the glory of the human life. It's not either or. So quickly, when we talk about humans made in the image and likeness of God, we're saying that every single human being is born into this world with a rock-solid, irreducible glory and has value and significance simply by existing as a human. Every single, no matter who you are or where you're from or what you've done, every single person bears the image and likeness of God. Several years ago, I was in Hong Kong. And if you've ever been to Hong Kong, it is the most densely populated city in the world. And for somebody like me on the uh, west coast of Oregon, or of the United States in Oregon, we like a little more space. (laughs) 
This isn't like a rock concert or something like that. That's just walking down the street on a regular day. And at some point in Hong Kong, it hit me that I'm standing in the place that has more image of God per square inch than anywhere else on the planet. Oftentimes we think of getting away from civilization, getting away from cities, getting away from people to go encounter God in creation. When the truth is that the pinnacle of his creation looks like a human being. If you think about the theological foundation for the Christians who led the civil rights movement in the 1960s, it was the doctrine of the Imago Dei, the image of God, the simple affirmation that we as black people are human beings. I am a man. So because all people bear the image and likeness of God, all people are worthy of being treated with dignity, kindness, justice, respect, and love. So if the image of God is true, then every single human life is sacred. Whether they're male or female, old or young, rich or poor, black or white, gay or straight, Christian or Muslim or Mormon or atheist or whatever labels anybody wants to put on themselves, every single human bears the image and likeness of God and is worthy of being loved. That's the first part. The second part is that because of sin, God's image is broken in all of us. The classic verse for this is Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God, meaning the revelation of God. While all humans bear the image of God and are therefore capable of goodness and wisdom, it's also true that all, all humans sin and fall short of this glory. Now this is a little bit less palatable in our culture to say that there's something wrong with me, that there's something fundamentally flawed with who I am and how I've chosen to live my life. We don't like the idea of being called sinners. <clears throat> and I would just ask you to consider this. If, if you don't feel like a sinful person, before you ask the question of whether or not you're living up to God's standards, I want you to just consider whether or not you're living up to your own standards. Are you always the person that you want to be? Do you always do what you believe to be the right thing to do? Have you always lived in a way that's consistent with your own morality and ethics? Or think about this. Is there any part of your life where you're pretending to be better than you actually are? If you answered yes to any of these questions, congratulations, you're a sinner. <laughs> we haven't even talked about living up to God's standards. We don't even live up to our own. We know that we're not the people we're supposed to be. We haven't lived the lives we were supposed to live. If we're honest, every single one of us knows 
that we're sinful people. So that's a brief theological anthropology. We are made in the image and likeness of God, and because of sin, that image is broken in us. But it still doesn't answer our question regarding Peter and the others who encounter God and their instinctive reaction is to turn their face away or even to tell God to leave. When, when Peter says, Jesus, go away, for I am a sinful man, look at how Jesus replies. Luke chapter 5, verse 10, Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Don't be afraid. It's the first thing that Jesus says to Peter as he has this epiphany, as he's seeing God and seeing himself clearly for the first time in his life. Now, so many of us, as I said, have grown up in a church environment where at some point somebody has told us that a holy God can't tolerate the presence of sin, that God is too pure to allow sin in his presence. And so we've looked at the anthropological question, the human question, but there's another side. It's the theological question, the God question. Is God too holy to allow humans in his presence? And it seems to me that we're given the perfect opportunity here on this little fishing boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee where Peter has this epiphany. He becomes aware of the presence of God in Jesus and the sinfulness of himself. And he says, Jesus, get away. I am a sinful man. Jesus, you would think, would say, that's correct. You need to get on a different boat. But instead, Jesus says, Peter, don't be afraid. I think Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm holy. But I don't think that quite means what you think it means. If we want to know what God looks like, we look at Jesus. The radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. And when we look at Jesus, we do see a holy God. But not a God who's too holy to allow sinners in his presence, but actually just the opposite. See, Jesus is well aware that Peter's a sinful man. That's not a surprise to him in that moment. Peter seems somewhat surprised by it. But Jesus, he knows he knows that Peter's a sinful man. That's why he's there. Later he goes, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. Jesus isn't the one who suddenly realizes he's in the presence of sin. Peter is the one who realizes he's in the presence of God and becomes aware of his own sinfulness. So here's the picture. Is Peter right that he is a sinful man? Yes. Is Peter right that if Jesus is really holy, then he's too pure to dwell in his presence, in Peter's presence? No. Peter's a sinner. But Jesus only calls sinners. 
And for Jesus to respond, be not afraid, reveals that he understands something about what's happening within Peter in that moment. Because I think what's happening in Peter is what happens in you and I. And that sometimes we avoid Jesus because we're afraid he's going to be offended by our sin. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. Why? I'm not that holy after all? No. Because God's holiness draws him towards sinners, not away. It's the holiness of God that causes him to move towards sinful humanity in love rather than cast them out of his presence. Because God is holy, he welcomes sinners to himself. God says the same thing to us that Christoph says to Anna. It's okay. My love is not fragile. Listen to this poem based on this passage. Luke 5, 1 Disciples by Joseph Ross. Here are working men with hands that are calloused, not consecrated. They are used to the burn of ropes, sweat and smells of fish, fraying nets and the squinting worry of work. This time, they are the ones caught. Though they try to close their eyes, like fish, they are lidless and they are seen. Somehow they are known by this stranger who smells like blood on wood. In Peter's moment of terror, we actually realize it is a moment of salvation. Our standing before God isn't based on how good we are. It's based on how loved we are. And the answer to that question is not only the life, but the death of Christ. What more could he have done? When their belovedness and affirmation is imparted in this moment, Jesus says, don't be afraid. I've got a mission for you. I've got a plan for you. I want you to join me in my work in the world. They reply in verse, seven, or in verse 11. They pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. What are they leaving? Not just a bunch of fish. They're leaving the jackpot the thing that was better than anything they could have imagined, that amount of money, what that represented. That's not the greatest takeaway for them that day. That's not, the fish isn't what made that day unforgettable for Peter. It's being accepted into the presence of a holy God. 
And when that happens, you leave everything and you follow him. So Antioch, if you're gonna follow Jesus, if I'm gonna follow Jesus, we also have to leave everything. Or another way of putting it is if we're going to go where Jesus is calling us, then we have to leave where we are. We have to be willing to open ourselves up to this idea that he's got new places he wants to take us, that he's got things that he wants to show us that we've never seen before. He wants to introduce us to people who we never would have met. He wants to change our minds. He wants to grow us up. He wants us to leave what we were and become what we're going to be. And part of what that looks like is learning to bear the image of Christ as he bears the image of God. Jesus isn't easily offended by sin, and we shouldn't be either. As we grow in the love and holiness of Christ, we also, as his body, ought to be people who are moved towards the sin and brokenness of the world, not away from it. And that kind of courage, that kind of passion, that only comes from the spirit of Jesus living within us. So Sean's gonna come and lead us to the Lord's table this morning. And in closing, I'll say that oftentimes Antioch and other churches are asked Who's allowed to take communion at your church? And the question that they're really asking is, who's in, who's out, who's good, who's bad? Who meets the qualifications to partake in the Lord's Supper? And our answer here is and has always been only sinners. Only those who, like Peter, will say, I am a sinful person. Those are the only people allowed to take communion. If that's not you, you don't need it. But I know I do.